Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 42 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, November the 15th. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. First, I talk to Andrew McClellan, the CEO of Blue Chip, which has a technology that wirelessly tracks the identification and temperature of available samples such as tissue, blood, serum and plasma, which are stored in harsh and aggressive environments like liquid nitrogen. The Blue Chip technology centres on a miniature chip with 52 mechanical beams of different lengths, all responding at different frequencies. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about the week ahead in the markets. But now, let's talk to Andrew McClellan. Andrew McClellan, tell us about the technology that goes into the blue chip tracking device. Yeah, so blue, blue chip uh, has a unique patent and technology, which is a MEMS device. It's a microelectromechanical system embedded in a one millimeter cube piece of silicon, which is very small. What's really quite uh, unique about uh, our technology is that it actually uh, it works and survives in very low uh, temperature conditions, uh, including down to liquid nitrogen conditions. How cold is that? Minus 196 degrees, which is, uh, yeah, very, very cold. And uh, at those temperatures, 
typical typical electronic uh, devices don't operate and electronics won't operate so uh, competing technology like RFID type technology which is like your passcode for the door doesn't work uh, doesn't typically work in those conditions some other differentiators for the blue chip core technology is that it survives sterilization which is very important for the for the market that we're entering uh, which is biological samples where you need to irradiate uh, samples so these are things like tissue blood serum plasma exactly exactly and these these those materials are used in uh, uh, research they're used in uh, developing drugs and pharmaceuticals they're used in viral therapy and research IVF IVF absolutely is a big market uh, where cryogenic uh, uh, liquid nitrogen you know, freezing of samples is, uh, is really important. What, what happens in those conditions is that is the, the tissue or the sample is actually put into stasis so you can actually store it for a long period of time. So who do you actually sell to? Yeah, look, our end customer who buys our tracking systems will be those pharmaceutical companies, they'll be the IVF clinics, um, they'll be the researchers, um, but that's a very broad market and it's a global market. So for us as a business, it's uh, uh, relatively uh, small out of Australia. Uh, our target is to work with what we call OEM partners. So these are companies that are in, in, embedded into the marketplace and supply the consumables that store these valuable samples. So these are companies that are making plastic tubes, they might make blood bags, uh, and they're put, all put into that storage and they've already got a, got a captive market and distribution channel. So they, they're the ones who sell it to the laboratories? Correct, correct. And that, that's great for us, and it's a change in strategy that we put in place about four years ago. What they do is they actually t- buy the, the raw chip uh, off us and they embed it into their consumable, and then they go and sell that to their end customers, and they typically have very broad distribution channels. Now, you, you actually have a chip with your devices, don't, they, don't you, to actually read the sample? Yeah, so we, we put a chip into the, into the base of the consumable or into the blood bag, um, and that chip uh, uh, provides an ID and the temperature of that uh, sample. Um, and then we have a reader that actually reads those chips. So we've got, a multiple, we've got multiple readers. We've got a handheld reader that allows people to be able to walk around a facility and uh, be able to identify samples as they walk around a facility. And we also have what we call a multi-vial reader or a multi-sample reader, which allows a user to, to read up to 100 samples all at once. And that's hugely important because uh, uh, the, there's a huge productivity benefit um, from being able to read 100 samples at once through frost, which is a major issue in these environments. The advantage here is you can actually identify it without touching it. Correct, yeah. So typically what people will do in these markets, they'll put a barcode uh, or a ha- even a handwritten label or they'll put a barcode onto a sample um, and sometimes they'll try and use an RFID but they've, they've not been successful to make them work at the very low temperatures. So with a barcode, it's pretty standard technology but what happens in these very cold environments, it's just like opening your freezer, you've got frost and if you try and read a sample's ID uh, and a barcode through frost, you can't because you can't see it. Um, so then what the users would typically do is they need to wipe the frost off with their finger or they need to thaw the sample, uh, which is a productivity issue and also a quality issue. Uh, and that's, that's hugely important. For, and for us, that you don't have to wipe the frost off. You can actually read through the frost and you can do up to 100 samples at once in about 20, 25 seconds. And we're already finding that some of our end customers, some of our... OEM partners and customers are, are you know, identifying uh, very significant productivity improvements. 
Now, this technology is all yours? You, you're the ones that developed it? Yeah, yeah. It was developed by a, a professor, uh, a Professor Ron Zamud, uh, developed here in Melbourne. Uh, we've uh, patented the technology. We have um, 25 granted patents uh, today. That's across seven different families, uh, across jurisdictions in uh, the US and Europe, um, and we're moving into, into Asia but, but it, it's our technology, and we develop and expand that uh, technology base, the core technology, in Australia here in the Melbourne office. Now, you're basically dealing with the life sciences sector. I'd imagine the biggest market there for you would be not Australia, but the US. Absolutely. Would that be right? Absolutely, uh, Leon. The, the major market for us, and it's very similar across multiple life science marketplaces, is, is North America. It accounts for about 40% of the global market. And when we're talking about over 300 million samples going into store a year, that's, that's, a, that's a large number, um, and it's growing quite dramatically. 40% in the U- US, Europe's the next major market, which is about 30 to 35. Then we deal also into Japan and China, so they're our targets, but we've got a big focus on the US, and we know that if we're able to succeed in the market in, in North America, um, we'll be a very successful company. So who are your major buyers yeah at, at the moment we're a growing business so eh? so we've been around for some time but we're we're now starting to get some traction in the marketplace we've got a major customer uh, a company called labcon uh, who's based in san francisco bay area they manufacture about 1.5 billion uh, consumables a year for the life science marketplace globally but primarily in north america so they're a, they're they're our most well progressed customer and uh, and they're purchasing uh, readers and chips office as we sit here today. That and they're they're the biggest, are they? Uh, they're they're a major player in the consumables marketplace. And uh, so, in terms of growth, I mean, uh, are you looking at other sectors? I mean, surely, uh, I, I I could see the potential for you to say go into food production, for example, or dare I say, the defence industry. Look, I mean, do, are you looking at any of that? Yeah, look, there's, we know there's a number of associated industries which we're able to uh, enter um, and progress. But for us, where we are at the moment, it's really about securing uh, our primary target market. And we maintain a very strong focus in our current market, which is the biopreservation marketplace. It's a small part of the overall life science marketplace, so we see some opportunities in the, in the broader life science marketplace. And when we're, de- when we're talking about 300 million samples plus a year going into store... And for us, each of those, each of the chips that we place into there, is best to think about as around a dollar. So we value our market at around two hundred million. So if we can penetrate that biopreservation marketplace and get a good share there, we can run into the millions of uh, millions of chips a year delivery into that marketplace and the tens of millions. We've got a very good uh, good launching pad to to enter into adjacent marketplaces. And you would you would uh, be quite a discreet company doing that. You'd mm. be one of the few in well, that space. R- really, we are the only company that can actually uh, identify and the ID and the temperature of samples in the very harsh environments and the very low temperature conditions. There is no other technology uh, that's able to do what we can do. That's quite impressive, which gives you a global market. Absolutely. That's, that's really quite... Now, tell me, I mean, you would have a lot of people doing R&D here, surely. Yes, our team is primarily based in uh, Melbourne, in our office here in Scoresby. We've got about 15 people on the ground here. 
um, primarily doing R&D. We've got a very uh, skilled workforce and we're really proud of that fact. We've got three PhDs uh, on the team uh, or with a technical background and we've also got a couple of masters uh, in engineering and three of us have got MBAs as well. So we've got a very strong and uh, skilled and talented team. Uh, we do our development here and that's really important because we're a technology company. IP is very important to us but it's the people that actually understand and know the technology um, and they're, they're what we've got on the ground here. How do you attract that sort of talent? <laughs> what do you have to do? Look, it's, it's, interesting, uh, it's interesting work. And we're doing things that nobody else in the world can do. And that's actually very exciting. And when you're attracting people that have got a technical, uh, a technical background, uh, it's a pleasure. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a reward being able to do that. And, and you know, for example, I, 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 we did some work with uh, Swinburne University who were running a um, program which was a, an industrial transformation research centre, which was a training centre. But we supported a PhD student who was a mechanical engineer by background. Uh, to go back to uni, and uh, he worked solely on with blue chip on a, on his PhD, and he's uh, now submitted his thesis. He hasn't quite uh, been accepted yet, but that's fantastic, and he's now working full time for us as a business, which is a which is a, a fantastic outcome. Now, interestingly enough, he's actually on board as a product manager. Now, um, that sort of uh, mindset and uh, opportunity to be able to do and and, and customize and deliver to what our uh, and customers are, are after um, is really exciting. So Blue Chip is also very much about developing local talent as yeah, well. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's that's quite intriguing. And Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Great, thank you very much, thank Leon. You. And now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James. Well, Craig James, what's ahead in the week? Well, it's a relatively quiet week uh, when you compare it yes, with previous weeks where we've had things like uh, wages and unemployment yes, sort of data out. But over the, the coming week, we've got a couple of speeches from Reserve Bank yes, sort of officials to, to focus on. But yes, so not a lot of yes, sort of top shelf indicators. Um, on Monday, we've got a speech by the Reserve Bank Governor Lowe at the Trans-Tasman Trans Business Circle. So certainly that'll be closely watched yes, so to see whether he provides any further yeah, information on yeah the, the the road ahead in in terms of interest rates yes are we going to see any further interest rate cuts or uh, are there unconventional sorts of monetary policy measures that will yes come through uh, we've got the usual weekly reading of consumer confidence which happens on Tuesday uh, also on Tuesday we've got a speech by another reserve bank official the assistant governor Christopher Kent so again we're watching that fairly closely and we've got the minutes of the the last reserve bank board meeting that was the the meeting to, to leave interest rates you know, unchanged so in the early part of November on Melbourne Melbourne Cup Day. We're not probably going to get too much, you know, some more in terms of information from the uh, the meeting minutes. We've already had the statement of monetary policy, and that's certainly uh, a significant uh, document, which has got you know all the figures and forecasts, you know, sit in there. But nevertheless, I mean, you know, so when the Reserve Bank either talks or writes something, you know, so you, you tend to be watching fairly carefully in terms of uh, economic data. Really, one of the only economic Economic data points that we've got. It comes on Wednesday with the skilled internet job vacancies re report. Now, the last reading for, for September was down by seven tenths of one percent. So we did. We have seen some softness in some of the leading indicators of jobs, and we've always got to remember that jobs is one of the 
key indicators that the Reserve Bank is watching now in terms of the setting of interest rates. The Reserve Bank believes that inflation has beaten and yes, the next uh, thing to, to focus on is getting that jobless rate down. And of course, the target in terms of the jobless rate is getting it down to a, uh, an annual, or getting it down, getting that unemployment rate down to 4.5%, which is perceived as the, the new floor for, for un unemployment. Uh, on Thursday, we're going to have some more detailed figures on, on the job market. Uh, we get some regional measures about um, uh, unemployment and employment, and we also get some demographic information as well. You know, things like you know, sort of how many seniors in, in the workforce, um, and uh, their participation rates very much carefully watched out for. The only other indicator of note, you know, so over the coming week is uh, the flash gauges of the the purchasing managers index. So the Combank market flash gauge services and manufacturing index will be very much in, in focus you know, so on Friday. So the, the week ahead, you know, so domestically, relatively quiet. You'd have to say the same about the uh, overseas calendar, particularly in terms of the United States. Probably the standout in terms of the United States is Wednesday when we'll have minutes of the, the last Federal Reserve meeting and interest rates were cut you know, in, in October. So we'll get a little bit more information about what they were seeing at, the, at that time and see whether you know, they provide you know, a little bit of guidance in terms of the future. Uh, interesting that you raised the, uh, the Fed cutting rates. And of course, the Fed cutting rates, wouldn't that put pressure on the RBA to cut rates further? It is something which the Reserve Bank has been focusing on. One of the reasons that the Reserve Bank has been cutting interest rates, because uh, if we didn't, you know, so we'd probably see that Aussie dollar rising rather than falling. And the, the Reserve Bank governor believes that if you've got a higher Australian dollar, that is bad news for businesses in terms of business products and, and, and services competing with uh, imported you know, sort of goods. So it's, it's the, the domestic consideration, our goods competing against imports, but it's also our ability to compete in terms of the, the export market. Always got to remember in terms of the Aussie dollar, though, you know, it's, it's a two-way street. Consumers like the Aussie dollar to be higher because you know, they like trips overseas and buying goods you know, off the internet, whereas businesses tend to favour a lower Australian dollar. But yeah, it has been you know, an interesting point when you look at you know, the last 12 months at least for the Australian dollar, it has been on a, a downward cycle. And the only reason that you could you know, sort of highlight for that, that trend is because uh, the US has been uh, less aggressive in cutting interest rates than we are in Australia. So now we are one of the low interest rate uh, currencies countries in the world as opposed to the United States which was probably you know see it's arguably you say it's one of the higher interest rate current countries in the world so US dollar has been you know so holding up our dollar has been falling and that's been supporting our economy as I say in terms of businesses um, exporting and really yes we have been exporting our socks off you know so here in Australia uh, the trade surplus over the last 12 months at record highs and it's likely that uh, the September quarter uh, current account result will be another current account surplus which is a rarity in Australia. Now uh, do you expect the RBA will cut rates again next year? 
Well, we have a uh, rate cut penciled in for February, and I think a number of the, the major banks and uh, major economic forecasting groups still have another interest rate cut penciled in. But it's a case of um, looking at um, some of the results of previous rate cuts. If the Reserve Bank believes that the, the lower interest rate um, levels that we already have are working their way through the economy and they are working their magic in terms of boosting economic growth, then the Reserve Bank will feel that there's no need to cut interest rates again. But um, uh, economists, you know, sort of a little bit wary a bit about that. You know, so we haven't seen you know, a lot in terms of concrete results. And, um, and that's why I think economists have another rate cut pencil in uh, because we haven't had solid evidence that um, the, the rate cuts have um, really stimulated the economy in a big way. And we've got to remember there is a fair bit of stimulus happening in terms of the economy. You go back a couple of months ago and we had you know, some changes in minimum wage rates. So there was an increase you know, so there. We've had the tax cuts flowing through. We've got the infrastructure spending, which is happening. We've got the lower Australian dollar. And we've got the low level of interest rates. So when you think about all the stimulus that's happening, you'd expect to see the economy perking up a little bit more. The only thing that seems as though it's perking up is that housing market and uh, home prices continue to rise in places like Sydney and Melbourne, and that's going to put upward pressure on uh, home prices in other parts of the, the, the country as well. Which uh, raises the prospect of perhaps another debt-fuelled uh, property boom. Oh, certainly that is is a risk, and I think you know so the the recent uh, television show the, the the block has probably highlighted that we we had all of the five properties which uh, went on to to the to the market uh, well and tr- truly exceeding their, their reserve. All the um, the houses are sold and uh, very tidy margins um, above uh, the reserve price as well. So it shows that you know sort of and we're talking about five properties which basically in the, in the region of three. 3.3, you know, sort of odd million, you know, so that they sold for. Five properties all selling on the one day, you know, sort of around about that price point, you know, sort of in one location being St Kilda. It's quite, you know, sort of amazing. If we look at the clearance rates, they've been up around about 70 or 80 percent, you know, in Sydney and Melbourne. So uh, certainly people, you know, sort of are indeed, you know, sort of embracing, you know, the, the market. I suppose one thing that we've got to think about, you know, in terms of that housing market, though, is there's not a lot of stock on the market. And I think that's one of the, the reasons that we're seeing, you know, this degree of upward pressure on prices. It's not just the, the low interest rates, but um, it's also the fact that people, you know, sort of trying to um, do their, their transactions, either buying to to live in or as an investment property and um, there's a few properties on, on, the, on the market but uh, we still do know that there is a lot of um, supply coming, a lot of places still under construction you know, sort of across the country. You see the uh, cranes on the horizon in most of the capital cities and uh, more of that stock coming on to, to the market will prevent I think you know, sort of home prices you know, going on a tear like we've seen in you know, sort of past years. And of course uh, I mean, we've also got population growth is continuing and uh, there's not enough properties that are coming on the market to meet that, which means prices will continue to rise. Well, certainly, yes, that is the case. That we we have it's somewhat of a rarity, you know, here in Australia that we have such a strong rate of population growth, up around about 1.5, 1.6 percent per per annum. And if um, the people keep coming, you've got to keep on building, yes, the homes. The other interesting thing is that the the home size, the household size, is continuing to to, to fall. So we have something like 2.4 uh, people per per home. Uh, and what that means is that um, when your household size is coming down, you may have to build 
you know, sort of more homes to be able to accommodate, you know, sort of people's needs. So, you know, that's why we are seeing, you know, sort of a significant um, building of uh, apartments. And um, the recent uh, ComSec report shows uh, that house size continues to, to fall. We have got a preference for uh, smaller homes, you know, sort of nowadays than what we've done in the past, something much more appropriate to our needs. And, you know, certainly one of the reasons is the the fact that um, people's needs, you know, sort of have changed, you know, smaller households around the place, more households, but smaller households. But we've also got to highlight the fact that if the cost of housing is significant and um, the cost of land is significant, you know, so that's a reason why you know, sort of smaller uh, homes are being built you know, sort of as well. So while there has been a downtrend over time in Australia to, to building you know, sort of more apartments and smaller houses, you've still got to remember that you know, sort of on an international scale that Australians are building some of the biggest homes in the world. So um, we're not really skimping too much. You know, so, on it, you know, so it's still the case that we are still building big homes. Well, Craig James, thank you very much for your time. It's very, very informative, and I'm sure the listeners will take it on. Thank you very much. Not a problem at all. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, in a heavily anticipated speech on the economy on Tuesday, President Donald Trump said the US will increase tariffs on China in case the first step of a broader agreement isn't reached. If we don't make a deal, we're going to substantially raise those tariffs, he said in a speech to the Economic Club of New York. They're going to be raised very substantially, and that's going to be true for other countries that mistreat us too. China is dying to make a trade deal with the US, Trump said, adding that he'd only sign it if it's good for American companies and workers. However, Mr Trump said, we're close to clinching a significant phase one trade deal with China. It could happen soon, but we will only accept a deal if it's good for the United States, our workers and great companies. Taking what amounted to a verbal victory lap on the performance of the US economy, which remains one of his strongest political suits for re-election in 2020, Mr Trump declared that the theft of American jobs and American wealth is over. Noting the strength of consumers buoyed by employment and wages growth, which have kept economic growth positive, if well short of his pre-election promises of 4%, 5% or 6%, Mr Trump hinted he would use that scope to press hard on trade. And the world faces a relentless upward march in greenhouse gas emissions from energy production and increasing strains on all aspects of energy security without dramatic changes in energy policies by countries around the world. In findings that were immediately criticised as too conservative and out of touch by environmental groups, the respected International Energy Agency also cautioned in its Global Energy Outlook that even when taking into account countries' policy intentions and targets, emissions failed to peak before 2040, and the world falls far short of sustainability goals. The IEA found the momentum behind clean energy, while significant, wasn't enough to offset the impact of an expanding global economy and growing population, and that hundreds of millions of people still would be without electricity in 2040, while pollution-related premature deaths would still be around today's elevated levels. The bleak warnings come after energy-related emissions rose to a record last year because of a remarkable 2.3% growth in energy demand, boosted by hotter summers and cold snaps that drove increased need for cooling and heating, the Paris-based IEA said in its closely-watched annual report. And Chinese e-commerce giants Alibaba and, and JD.com reported a total of more than US $55 billion, that's $80 billion Aussie, in sales on Monday midway through Singles Day, 
an annual marketing event that is the world's busiest online shopping day. The sales are giving the Chinese economy a needed boost amid the US-China trade war. Alibaba reported the sales of US $1 billion in just over a minute. The day's sales, the scale of which looks to set yet another record in its 11th year, was temporary relief to retailers facing fading demand as Chinese consumers anxious over slowing economic growth and the tariff war with Washington tightened their belts. Held annually on November the 11th, China's so-called 11-11 Global Shopping Festival is now larger than US equivalents Black Friday and Cyber Monday combined. That figure is equivalent to more than 80% of its US rival Amazon's online sales. And speculation is rife that Australia is about to start printing money as RBA Governor Philip Lowe prepares to speak on quantitative easing. The RBA has confirmed that Philip Lowe will give a speech on unconventional monetary policies like quantitative easing, the buying of government bonds to inflate the money supply. The speech, titled Unconventional Monetary Policy, Some Lessons from Overseas, will be delivered at the annual Australian Business Economist Dinner in Sydney on the 26th of November. And Australian wages rose 0.5% in the September quarter 2019 and 2.2% through the year, according to figures released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And the NAB monthly business survey showed a small improvement in the month with conditions edging up one point and confidence lifting two points, though both conditions and confidence remain below average. Mining, construction, finance and recreation services all contributed to the monthly gain in business conditions. Manufacturing and transport were the largest attractors. Retail business conditions have been stable for the past few months, but remain deep in negative territory. And Roy Morgan business confidence dropped 4.6 points to 106 in October, putting it at its lowest level since the federal election in mid-May. The fall was heaviest in forward-looking indicators with the largest decline concerning business prospects this time next year. Even so, a slim majority of businesses, 50.4%, say the coming year is a good time to invest in growing the business. The October 2019 business confidence level is 7.1 points lower than it was a year ago and 9.5 points below the long-term average of 115.5. And Australian retailers are in for a bleak Christmas. According to the Deloitte's annual Christmas retailers survey report, Positive sentiment is down re-Christmas trading, in strong contrast to 2018, when they were approaching the season with a strong sense of optimism. Only 62% of retailers expect to see higher sales this Christmas compared to last year, down from 80% last year. Just under 40% are expecting to see some form of Christmas period margin decrease. 39% will be discounting pre-Christmas to help drive sales. Digital continues to be a standout with 58% expecting to see growth of 10% or more in online Christmas sales. Only 72% expect to see positive sales growth in calendar year 2020, down from more than 90% for 2019. And the male-dominated finance industry is missing out on more than $700 billion a year in revenue by failing to listen to or tailor products for women, according to management consultancy Oliver Wyman. Many products that appear gender neutral actually default to men's needs, with wealth products in particular not consistently designed for women's financial lives, the report said. For example, if insurers sold life policies to women at the same rate as to men, they could generate $500 million in new premiums, Oliver Wyman estimated. Women also tend to hold more of their assets in cash rather than stocks and bonds, costing wealth and asset managers a potential $25 billion in fees. 
The problems are compounded by a lack of women in senior management in the finance industry. Just 20% of finance executives globally are women, up from 16% in 2016, the report said. The industry continues to grapple with many of the same challenges as it has in the past, including the mid-career gap that holds many women back, it said. And another day, another set of quarterly results from the MBN Co., the company rolling out Australia's broadband network, but little change from earlier quarters. For the first quarter of FY 2020, the company said it had recorded losses of $1.18 billion, compared to $875 million a year earlier. Revenue reached $876 million, an increase of 41% on the corresponding quarter a year ago. And Commonwealth Bank has confirmed it is facing seven separate class action lawsuits as the Australian Institute of Company Directors calls for a tighter regulatory regime for companies' funding actions brought on behalf of shareholders. CBA Deputy Chief Executive David Cohen said the bank was facing seven class action lawsuits, including three relating to its colonial first state superannuation business, two over its Austrac money laundering failures, and one in the United States relating to alleged interest rate rigging. The bank agreed to provide specific details on the cases to the House of Representatives Economic Committee after Liberal MP Jason Felinski raised concerns about foreign litigation funders making huge returns on actions in Australia. The new political focus on class actions comes after a landmark decision by Justice Jonathan Beach in the federal court last month in a shareholder class action relating to Meyer. The court found that investors who paid an inflated price as a result of misrepresentation could receive compensation without needing to prove actual reliance on the misrepresentation, a principle known as indirect or market-based causation. And Commonwealth Bank has bucked the trend of weakness that has pervaded the banking sector with a first quarter cash profit to September 30 up 5% to $2.3 billion. The bank has not revealed any additional customer remediation in the update. The bank has so far provided $2.2 billion in customer refunds and program costs. And National Australia Bank faces a multi-million dollar penalty after admitting to 255 breaches of credit laws as it looks to settle a lawsuit from the corporate cop over a scandal involving its use of mortgage introducers. In a case that was launched following scrutiny from the Hain Royal Commission, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission in August took legal action alleging NAB broke credit laws in relation to 297 loans after referrals from unlicensed introducers. And the weak advertising market has pushed nine to downgrade its full-year earnings forecast and the media business is now expecting low single-digit growth. Nine chief executive Hugh Marks warned investors at the annual general meeting that despite confidence that the company will continue to gain market share in free-to-air television, the ad market remains challenging. In December last year, Nine completed a $4 billion merger with Fairfax Media. The deal bought in a 59% stake in real estate classifieds to business domain. The other 50% of streaming platform stand that it didn't own a majority stake in Macquarie Media, which it, which it has now fully acquired, and publications such as the Australian Financial Review, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And competitor Seven West Media it says it expects its earnings before interest and tax to be at the lower end of its guided range between $190 million and $200 million. It also expected the metropolitan television market to be down mid-single digits for the financial year. And floods in Queensland have hit InsiTech Pivot's profits. InsiTech Pivot's fiscal year net profit dropped to $152.4 million, down from $207.9 million in the same period a year ago. The firm took $140 million of non-recurring items in the year, mainly relating to flooding in North Queensland. 
revenue climbed to $3.92 billion from $3.87 billion. And Qantas has pledged to cut its net carbon emissions to zero by 2050, breaking ranks with its global airline peers at a time when aviation is under unprecedented scrutiny over its contribution to climate change. The Australian carrier will become the second airline group in the world to make a zero net emissions commitment, which it plans to achieve through fuel efficiency and the use of carbon offset schemes. Qantas's goals go beyond its previous pledge to cut emissions to half their 2005 level by 2050, which is in line with most other airlines and their global industry body. Qantas Chief Executive Alan Joyce said the goals would result in the airline group, including budget arm Jetstar, capping net emissions at their current level of about 12 million tonnes from next year, and then cut it gradually over the next 30 years. Aviation contributes about 2% of the world's carbon emissions, and that is likely to grow as the number of people flying double every year between now and 2037, according to International Air Transport Association forecasts. And Elders says it can withstand the fallout from the drought and still make a solid return in tough times. The company says the drought in New South Wales and southern and western Queensland was impacting earnings in those areas, but the elders' business was diversified across geographies and products, and in a solid position to withstand the worst of it. The summer cropping season was likely to be down about 30%, but elders expects a winter cropping season to be around average. And businesses bidding for federal government contracts will have to disclose links to overseas tax havens, part of a plan by Centre Alliance to establish a public register targeting tax avoidance. Senate power broker Rex Patrick has introduced legislation requiring any federal procurement deal worth more than $4 million to be subject to new reporting requirements, following advice from the Tax Commissioner. For for construction projects, a higher threshold of $7.5 million would apply. And BHP plans to expand in oil and gas after quitting a disastrous foray into US shale, defying investors who want the world's biggest miner to cast off the business. The company's petroleum head said the business is set to deliver strong returns in cash flow through the 2020s and beyond, supported by high potential projects in the Gulf of Mexico, Western Australia and Trinidad and Tobago. Petroleum, which accounted for about 16% of BHP's underlying earnings in 2018-19, could potentially generate margins of more than 60% over the next decade, Geraldine Slattery, President Operations Petroleum, told a briefing. Excluding the shale business, the company's oil and gas arm has long had some of the strongest returns in the group's portfolio, including iron ore, copper and coal. With projects awaiting approval, the division could support average annual volume growth of up to 3% in the decade to 2030 and deliver average internal rates of return for major projects of around 25%, she said, at the company's first petroleum briefing since 2016. Slattery says in a decarbonising world, deep water oil and advantage gas close to established infrastructure can offer competitive returns for decades to come. And an office manager who ordered stuff to carry bags of cash totaling $4.6 million to a Commonwealth Bank of Australia branch as part of an international money laundering operation has been sentenced to three years and two months in prison. Kit Tang, 42, had pleaded guilty in July to five charges connected to money laundering. Tang ran CCMB International, which purported to be a meat exporting business in Springvale, Melbourne. He was described as a man on the ground for siblings Billy and Connolly Loon who ran CCMB from their Hong Kong base. And that's it for this week. 
And next week I'll be talking to George Simalis, the CEO of IQ Group Global, a group of companies dedicated to developing early-stage bioscience assets. And then I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering, looking at the latest figures for Australia's unemployment and wages growth. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week, take care, be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.